everyone. It's James Lindsay, and I'm happy to have you here for another episode of New Discourses Bullets, where I'm going to give you a quick bullet-pointed summary of something important you need to understand about what's going on in the woke Marxist world today. And I'm talking right now about Klaus Schwab, the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, and his neo-communist push to transform the world to a program of his vision. Uh, he has this stakeholder capitalism vision that is a Leninist, Maoist program to remake society, a top-down, bottom-up, inside-out cultural revolution to remake society according to his vision. But I want to frame this today in terms of the classic piece of leftism, the classic article of leftism, which is social contract theory, which goes back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1762, the same social contract theory that led to the bloody French Revolution, the same social contract theory that inspired Hegel and Marx going forward philosophically, and now we're going to read very explicitly in Klaus Schwab's 2022 book, The Great Narrative. I'm going to go ahead and read, because I want to keep this short, I'm going to go ahead and read pretty quickly through this, but I want you to understand that Klaus Schwab fully intends to redefine the social contract under his vision. That's his objective. Tools like ESG, which is Environmental, Social, and Governance Metrics and Accounting, Sustainable Development Goals, so-called so SDGs, and social-emotional learning as a model of education are going to be the tools by which he wants to remake the social contract itself through his top-down um, public-private partnership, his bottom-up youth movement, and the broader inside-out cultural revolution that he's trying to inspire. I'm going to read directly a number of paragraphs from uh, his 2022 book, the Great Narrative, where he lays this out, where his thinking is this year. And he starts off by framing inequality as the major driver for change. He starts off by, for the part that we're going to cover here, he starts off by quoting UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. And he says, as he puts it, quote, inequality defines our time. He then goes on to say, its manifestations are so multifaceted and have reached such proportions to address that it demands nothing short of a redefinition of our social contract. Now, I could go into social contract theory and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but Klaus does it for us, so we'll just continue reading a few paragraphs down. He says, Rising concerns about inequality and the profound sentiment of dissatisfaction, if not anger, that it provokes will prompt many societies around the world to redefine the terms of their social contract. Now imagine, if you will, that you have an organization that funds a lot of woke Marxism, a lot of this identity politics that makes people angry and makes them perceive inequality and injustice, like the World Economic Forum and all of its various partners. And then that same organization happens to point out, look how angry people are, look how dissatisfied people are because of the inequality that we are actually stoking. Huh. What if that same organization was creating gigantic wealth inequality by creating policies, say through COVID-19, that funnel tons and tons of money to the big corporations like Amazon that did wonderfully well through the pandemic while all of the smaller things get squashed and destroyed? So you're creating social inequality, you're creating wealth inequality, and then you're saying, look how much inequality there is. This demands a complete redefinition of our social contract. We need an entirely new society under the leftist terms defined over two and a half centuries ago by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Broadly defined, Klaus says, the social contract refers to the often implicit set of arrangements and expectations that govern the relations between individuals and institutions. Put simply, it is the glue that binds us, our societies, together. 
Without it, the social fabric unravels. The growing general recognition is that the social contract in many countries around the world is broken, and that its multiple elements, quote, from cradle to grave, need to change. What Jean-Jacques Rousseau did when he framed out the social contract, since Klaus hasn't said this, and it's important to understand, is that the social contract is this broad contract we all agree to by virtue of being citizens of a, of a, of a nation or citizens of the world or whatever the, you would want to think of it, Klaus would say of the world. I don't think global citizens exist, and they should not exist. We should be uh, national citizens. But at any rate, citizens, in some way, agree to certain rules of propriety, certain rules of law, certain rules of other things in order to make society function better. In other words, as Rousseau had it, that you willingly give up some of your freedom to increase overall freedom, which sounds like a weird magic trick. Decrease your freedom to have more freedom. Doesn't make sense. This is what he's actually talking about doing. We're going to have to give up a lot of our freedom. We will own nothing and be happy, Klaus tells us in his 2016 World Economic Forum Great Reset advertisement video he put out. So you'll give up your, say, rights to property ownership, and we'll have more freedom as a result of not having to own anything, because owning things would mean taking care of things, right? Which you might do or you might not do, but either way it limits you. For decades, Klaus tells us, pretty much everywhere the social contract has slowly and almost imperceptibly evolved in a direction that has forced individuals to assume greater responsibility for their individual lives and economic outcomes. Doesn't that sound terrible? For decades, the social contract has almost imperceptibly perceptibly evolved in a direction that has forced individuals to assume greater responsibility for their individual lives and economic outcomes. And this is the thing Klaus has a problem with. It says, he says needs to change. People have been expected to take more and more responsibility for themselves and their lives. And this, he says, has led to large swaths of the population, most evidently in the low-income brackets, to conclude that the social contract was, at best, being eroded, if not in some cases, breaking down entirely. This, by the way, is the exact same economic materialist agitation that Karl Marx tried to put forth in his idea of class antagonism. Today, the fundamental reasons underpinning the loss of faith in our social contracts coalesce around issues of inequality the ineffectiveness of most redistribution policies, a sense of exclusion and marginalization, and a general sentiment of unfairness. I think that's funny. The ineffectiveness of most redistribution policies is a cause of resentment and dissatisfaction. Really, your own leftist policies, which don't work, aren't working, and it causes people to be dissatisfied, but you're going to say it's somebody else's fault. Again, the same classic Marxist deflection of responsibility and demand for more ability to keep doing what they're doing. This is where bloody revolutions like the Bolshevik Revolution and the French Revolution ultimately come from. Not just these failure, fail, failures of policy, but also deflecting the blame onto some scapegoat. It is for this reason, Klaus tells us, that many citizens have begun to denounce a breakdown of the social contract. See, lots of people are doing this already. You should join in. Propaganda. Expressing more and more forcefully a general loss of trust in institutions and leaders. That's not why we're losing trust in institutions and leaders. It's because they're implementing terrible failed leftist policies in line with the Great Reset. But nevertheless, same trick. Propaganda. In some countries, this widespread exasperation has taken the form of both peaceful and violent demonstrations. In others, it has led to electoral, electoral victories for populist and extremist parties. 
framing out the resistance as extremists and as populists to kind of draw parallels to things like the Nazis. Whichever form it takes, in, all, in almost all cases, the establishment's response has been left wanting, ill-prepared for the rebellion and out of ideas, and policy levers to address the problem. Although they are complex, the policy, uh, the policy solutions do exist, as we will see in Chapter 3, and broadly consist in adapting the welfare state to today's world by empowering people and by responding to the demands for a fairer social contract. Over the past few years, several international organizations and think tanks have adjusted to this new reality and outlined proposals on how to make it happen. The pandemic has marked a turning point by accelerating this transition. It has magnified and crystallized the issue and made a return to the pre-pandemic status quo impossible. Which particular form might the new social contract take? There are no off-the-shelf ready-to-use models because each potential solution depends on the history and culture of the country to which it applies. Sounds very Marxist. For obvious reasons, a good social contract for China will be different from uh, one for the U.S., which will in turn, which in turn will not resemble one for Denmark or Nigeria. However, they could all share some common features and principles, the absolute necessity for which has been made ever more obvious by the social and economic consequences of the pandemic crisis to stand out. One, a broader, if not universal, provision of social assistance, social insurance, health care, and basic quality services. In other words, socialism. And two, a move toward enhanced protection for workers in the form of mandatory benefits, a minimum decent wage, and help to adapt to the disruptive effects of innovation. In other words, socialism. In addition, a critical aspect of a new social contract pertains to liberties and freedom, at least in democratic countries. There's a growing concern that the fight against this pandemic and the future ones, that's ominous, will lead to the creation of permanent surveillance societies, an issue explored in more detail in the next section. That's ominous. Collectively redefining the terms, he says, of our social contracts is an epical task. That's what we're here for that binds the substantial challenges of the present moment to the hopes of the future. As Henry Kissinger reminded us, quote, the historic challenge for leaders is to manage the crisis while building the future. Failure could set the world on fire. End quote. While reflecting on the contours we think a future social contract might follow, we ignore at our peril the opinion of the younger generation who will be asked to live with it. Their adherence is decisive, and thus to better understand what they want, we must not forget to listen. Of course, how convenient if you, say, adopted a Paulo Freirean model where what you do is you position yourself as a facilitator to agitate the youth in a particular direction, say through social-emotional learning. So you agitate them, and then you tell them the correct interpretation of what they're experiencing, the one you want them to have, and then you force everybody to listen to what they say after you've brainwashed them to say what you wanted them to say in the first place. Wouldn't that be an interesting little circle to walk around? This is all the more significant because the younger generation is likely to be more radical in its demands in refashioning our social contract. The pandemic has upended their lives, and a whole generation across the globe will be defined by economic insecurity and climate anxiety. Yeah, thanks, Klaus. They will bear these scars forever. Already the millennials, at least in the Western world, are worse off than their parents in terms of earnings, assets, and wealth. They are less likely to own a home or have children than their parents were. Now, another generation, Gen Z, is entering a system that it sees as failing and that will be beset by long-standing problems revealed and exacerbated by the pandemic. 
As a college junior put it, citing the important sources here, quote, young people have a deep desire for radical change because we see the broken path ahead. How will this generation respond, he asks? By proposing radical solutions, often radical action, to prevent issues like social inequalities from worsening or the next disaster like climate change from striking. The young generation see both as two facets of the same coin, intergenerational inequality. Sounds super Marxist, but okay. It will most likely demand a radical alternative to the present course because its members are frustrated and dogged by a nagging belief that the current system has failed them and is fractured beyond repair. Imagine if you ran an organization fostering exactly that thought, exactly the conditions that lead young people to believe that, and then you use it. And then you say we have to listen to the people that you facilitated into that view. Imagine. As a result, youth activism is increasing worldwide being revolutionized by social media that fosters mobilization to an extent that would have been impossible before. You can hear the salivation for the revolution right there. It's possible now. Yeah. It takes many different forms, ranging from non-institutionalized political participation to demonstrations and protests, and addresses inequalities in a multifaceted manner. Seeing issues as diverse as income inequalities, climate change, economic reforms, gender equality, and the LGBTQ rights, as part of a more general inequality problem. The young generation is firmly at the vanguard of social change. There is little doubt that it will be the catalyst for change. Throughout the rest of this book, he talks about how the youth are going to demand compliance with ESG standards, sustainable development, resilience, all of these buzzwords that they've now packaged up um, communism into a new, new box under their control and direction. And he says, well, the youth are going to demand an entirely new social contract that that demands these changes. They are going to be firmly at the vanguard of social change. This is a youth movement in, in, in alignment with either Mao Zedong or Herbert Marcuse trying to radicalize and create the new sensibility, the new rationality, the new morality. He actually talks about that in this book too, that we need a new morality And we're going to find it largely in this younger generation to whom we must listen, who's been facilitated into this belief that the world is broken beyond repair. So this is the program of social change that Klaus Schwab is recommending, that the World Economic Forum is attempting to force upon us. And you see the mechanism. Tools like social-emotional learning and ESG and sustainable development goals are the weapons that they're using to transform the society to create a new Rousseauian-style leftist social contract under their control, stakeholder control, where they are the stakeholders and you are the serfs. Thanks for listening. I hope this helps you understand more of what's going on in the world around us. 